This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we'll talk about Spirit Aerosystems and how some of the machinists uh, union is fighting back against uh, vaccine mandates, which are mandatory for federal contractors, of which Spirit Aerosystems is a member. Uh, We'll talk about the Starliner and how that won't be flying until the second half of 2022 now. Boeing's uh, 777 air freighter plans that are going to put them toe-to-toe with Airbus. We'll talk about some wing drones, the Forkner indictment. A little more news has come out now that we've looked at the charges. Uh, and lastly, in our EV2L well segment, we'll talk both about Lilium and ABB partnering on chargers and the very interesting Cyclotech rotor EVTOL, which is back and hovering on YouTube and making some headlines. So, Alan, let's talk about vaccines first. So, Spirit Aerosystems obviously is a big supplier to Boeing, among others. And they are now in a bit of a fight with the machinists union. And, uh, you know, basically people don't want to be mandated to take uh, vaccines. And as a federal contractor, um, that's going to that's sort of the lay of the law. So Spirit has told them that they need to need need to be need to be vaccinated to continue to supply them. What's your take on this situation? Is this going to continue to be a problem or are they going to fall in line? I think this is going to be a continual problem across the United States. There will be a, a significant portion of employees that are not going to abide by a mandate like that. And they're going to push back. And, and if you're an individual, I think that's one thing to push back. But you have to just sort of grin and bear it because there, it sounds like the federal government's taking away all testing options. Like you have to have the vac- vaccination or you don't work. And we're going to pull things like unemployment away, which is really spiteful, in my opinion, which is going to make it worse. Right. You're going to entrench employees to fight even more against it. The The issue at Spirit and at Textron, they're gonna, everybody's going to have the same issue is that I think some portion of the, of the employees are not going to respond to it, and they, but they have a union, and the union is strong. And if there was some sort of uh, discrimination happening or some sort of other type of uh, union versus uh, the employer that affected 10% of their community, the union would go to battle for that historically. And so I don't, I don't think it's really leaving the union any choice. They have to do this. They're going to have to. Uh, battle this out. I don't think the union going to dump their employees. If they do, then it's a huge win for the the, the, the businesses and the corporations because you're sort of like union busting. So this, this is, don't you see this weird dynamic that's happening, Dan, that, you know, a pro supposedly pro union uh, president administration is essentially going to cause a lot of turmoil within unions that are uh, trying to, to work their way through this vaccine mandate. Yeah, it's it's really problematic. On the one hand, I get it because this is a pandemic. It's a public health thing. So it's bigger than any just, you know, one person's individual liberties at that point. But at the same time, I understand about being mandated to put things in your body. So I see both sides of it. It's it's hard. And yeah, you wonder if 
what's going to come of this. Now, the one thing I, I guess I will say is I don't see the big nervousness and I've had, you know, I have some friends who think this as well. And they're like, I don't, I don't trust putting that in my body. It's like, well, do you trust all the, all the other drugs that you put in your body? They could equal, I mean, they're subject to the same scrutiny where I I see the logic breakdown for a lot of people. It's like, well, well, if you're, if that's your stance that you don't, you don't trust what could come of it, which is, which is valid, then you also probably shouldn't take any medicine ever or supplements and other stuff because you just don't know what's going on. I mean, if that's your standard of proof, then um, it's a pretty high standard of proof. And if it doesn't apply to everything in your life, then why does it apply to this one? Because vaccines have been around for a long time. But again, like I, I get it. There's a, you know, a, a liberty everyone wants to have here in the U.S. And um, it's an understandable concern. So, yeah, we'll see. This is going to be a be an ugly fight, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, uh, this is not over. And I, I think there is a s- select portion of the population that has a really good argument, which I haven't seen addressed. And I think this applies to uh, medical workers, nurses in particular, physicians, same thing. There's a, you know, if you're a 20 year old to 30 year old female and you're intending to have children, I think there's a significant question in their heads about whether this is a risk or not. And a lot of employees at aircraft companies are women, younger women, that are, are of age of having children. And I think they're very reluctant to put, do anything like that. I think they're reluctant to take any vaccine or any sort of medication uh, if they are pregnant. And I think that is going to be a real strong line. It's different if it's like a 40-year-old guy who's working the line, right? I think that's that's different than someone who is going to have a child. And I think as a union, you got to you got to cover all everybody in that in that situation, right? It could be the the pregnant eight month old pregnant or eight month pregnant woman who's who's still at work and the fifty year old guy. They both get the same opportunity to be represented, and I just wonder how that's really going to go because it, the optics are really bad for the corporation. Uh, and if their hands are tied, I think the optics are bad for them. Don't you think that that just looks bad? Yeah, I know. I, I agree. It does. Yeah, it's it's complicated. The thing with pregnancy is definitely an understandable um, reluctance to take that, and because you know, and and so many of the things like they can't really do studies on a lot of stuff with pregnant women. A lot of the recommendations, like don't eat soft cheeses, they don't really know that that stuff hurts a fetus because they don't have a control group where they're going to feed, you know, 20 pregnant women soft cheeses and 20 women not. Like that's not an ethical thing to do. So a lot of these recommendations are just very cautious because no one wants to, to take the risk. And again, human studies, just the ethics are just very difficult. So. Yeah, it's an understandable thing. So we'll we'll keep watching and seeing what happens. I mean, this is this is a issue in a lot of industries right now. So we'll see what happens when December rolls around. It's gonna be it's gonna be crazy. Uh, so moving on, the Boeing uh, Starliner, obviously an embattled uh, space spacecraft here. Uh, it says they're not gonna launch probably in the second half of 2022. They still have not been able to figure out the root cause of why 13 of the 24 valves uh, remain stuck during you know, pre-mission uh, activities. So, Alan, we report a lot of Boeing misgivings these days. Do you think they're going to figure this out? Oh, yeah. I think they're going to, as soon as they can pull those valves and start cutting them apart and looking at the different uh, pieces to it, The is it corrosion? Is it thermal stress? There's something that should be obvious when you start cutting them apart. Obvious, but the problem is what you start cutting 
space hardware apart, it's, it indicates that there's a real central issue deep down inside. And when that happens, whatever fix you come up with, and let's say that there is a real simple fix, you're going to have to test the heck out of that before you can implement it back on the spacecraft. And that's where the time is. It's, it's not so much as in determining what the issue is and identifying a fix. It's demonstrating that that fix won't cause other issues in the system in terms of a system performance. That's the trouble. So there, I, I think getting something off by the end of next year would be aggressive, really aggressive because of the, the, the broad scope of this issue. Don't you think so? Because if it was one, okay, half, it's a lot. Half of them's a lot. Like you said, it looks like a manufacturing problem. Yeah, that they just need to figure out. Yeah. Well, moving on, uh, Boeing is sounds like they're set to unveil a 777X air freighter, uh, which is going to compete with Airbus, which has a larger share of the the freighter market. Alan, why is this a big deal for Boeing to be a entering the freighter market and b uh, cr- announcing this freighter version when the passenger version really hasn't come to market yet? Uh, there's well, as we know, there's a huge, a free, huge freighter market where the long haul passenger service has essentially been cut in half or more because of COVID, and they don't particularly see uh, the triple seven having a large number of sales in in a, in a passenger configuration. So in the meantime, you need to find that outlet, right? And freight is it with with Amazon buying airplanes or leasing airplanes, which is what they've been doing, 767s and some others, and, it, and there's rumors of them starting their own little airline, then their potential sales. Obviously, FedEx buys a lot of airplanes from Boeing, too. Their freighters, the 767, has been the popular one. But this 777 would be an also a very doable aircraft because of the new engines and the efficiencies they're putting in that particular upgrade on the 777X. So I, I think there's a huge growing marketplace because we're as we all do right we all we all get stuff from amazon and you know all these other websites somebody's got to fly those parts around and they kind of need airplanes to do it so it may become you know we may get to the day where the number of aircraft that are flying packages is equivalent to or greater than the you know the passenger service stuff which would be amazing <laughs> what a shift what a shift yeah, well, speaking of uh, deliveries, uh, this company, Wing, is teaming up with Walgreens to deliver, you know, Walgreens products uh, door-to-door. They're starting in uh, in Texas, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we've talked about drones. They seem to have, like, lost traction the last year. Um, but, Alan, what do you think of the Wing, the Wing drone? It's a pretty interesting little aircraft. It's definitely not what you think of when you think of, like, a DJI drone, you know, like these little quadcopters. Um, first, give me your take on, on the actual aircraft. I, I think they're designing it around the package load capability, right? So if they can haul more stuff, larger, larger items, then the better it's going to be, right? So they have to try to balance, like like in the full version eVTOLs, they have to balance weight versus flight duration and recharging, right? So all the, the designs get revolved around that a lot, and I think you're still going to see some shake out in that but don't you think that the walgreen aspect is really interesting in that uh you don't think of a pharmacy as a place that would do a lot of deliveries besides prescriptions right that the prescription would be the the one thing and then walgreens is a huge player of the united states in, in prescriptions but i also think that aren't wouldn't they compete with like a walmart in a sense like a lot of the things that 
Walgreens have is also at Walmart in terms of, uh, you know, health and beauty aids, uh, even snack items. <laughs> you walk into local Walgreens or carry snack items and milk and bread and stuff like that. So it's almost like a little bit of a grocery store, a little bit of a, a, a pharmacy, a little bit of a uh, tools, light bulbs, that kind of thing. So you got to wonder if if Walgreens is really thinking outside the box and is going to push into space that uh, for convenience wise that you don't want to go to Walmart. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it's funny how my views of the uh, pharmacy have really evolved because when I lived in the suburbs for most of my adult life, um, I would never really go to pharmacies because, you know, like maybe I get a prescription there. But like you said, you can get a prescription filled at Walmart, uh, you know, Target now. And I'm not going to go do grocery shopping at CVS. You know, CVS and Walgreens, they always sort of lived in this in between where it's not a convenience store. It's got more than that, but it's also got higher prices. So you don't really want to go buy, you know, everyday stuff there because it's got a markup, right? Um, and so, yeah, you're wondering, well, if I'm going to do all this stuff, why why would I want to get it done at Walgreens? But now if you like live out in the country or you live a little farther away or you're just really on the go and Walgreens is your pharmacy, then, yeah, oh, I can get my prescriptions sent over via drone. Um yeah, you know, Walmart, Target can't do that. It's one less trip, so that makes sense. But you're right, with more big box places, like Costco obviously you know, offers a pharmacy. Um, yeah, it's, it's sort of displaced the you know, CVS and Walgreens. Now, they're everywhere, so they clearly are, are profitable. Like, it's clearly a profitable business. Now, what I was going to say is that in the city, so I live in D.C., and these are like mini grocery stores for many people. Like, I got printer paper at CVS the other day. The, literally, there's nowhere else within a mile and a half walk to get printer paper. You know, I could have Amazoned it, but sometimes you just like, eh, I don't feel like waiting two days or I just need to go grab this. And that's what CVS is for a lot of people in cities. I mean, there's there's grocery stores, but they're hard to maintain in the city, right? It's a huge footprint. Um, so they're just more spread out than they are in the suburb. And if you're going to walk and get your groceries and walk home like I am, you're not going to trek out a mile and a half and walk back with groceries in hand. So these CVSs in the city are much different now that doesn't really play into this, this drone delivery. But um, but yeah, you could definitely see in rural areas where people are more like bought into a certain pharmacy. Um, obviously, you know, Dallas, it's going to get pretty spread out as soon as you leave the city limits. Right. A lot of a lot of land out there. Um, I could see this making sense. And I, I love their video. It's super cool. Um, you know, they show a, a employee holding out this little, looks like a takeout container and they connect it and then the drone, I guess, uh, hoists it up and tucks it in tight and then flies off with it. Like, that's pretty amazing. So it'd be cool to see somebody pull this off. And, um, you know, especially as people work from home, this probably makes more sense now than it did pre pandemic, right? You know, you're going to zip home and stop at the pharmacy on the way home from the office prior. Now you're like, I'm not leaving the home. The kids are here but we need our medication. I don't need to go to, to Target. I don't need to go to the grocery store for two more days. I'll just drone it over here. Could be a good good niche, yeah. Oh, I, I think so. I, I wish we're in the opposite situation of you, Dan, in, in that we're sort of rural, right? And we have we have a Walgreens, which is almost like a, it is your small Walmart. That's what it is, right? It's And it's closer. It's community-based. So I think there's a huge market opportunity. And boy, if in the, in the wintertime here, if someone can deliver your prescription to your house instead of you trenching through the snow to get to the Walgreens, you would do it. Yeah, you would do it. Totally do it. So, yeah, let's keep an eye on it. It's going to be that's an interesting technology. It's still developing. 
So we're going to chat a little bit more about the Mark Forkner indictment. Um, so both Alan and I had a chance to read through the actual uh, criminal complaint. And Alan, let's start with you. So what, what new information did you learn reading through this? Which this is the first uh, like criminal complaint I've ever read. I've read through different lawsuits over the years. Um, and obviously they, they look similar in form. But this was interesting just to read through this. Yeah, obviously it wants to highlight the quote-unquote criminal charges that they're going to allege. Uh, and the, the so it, it's basically wire fraud. <laughs> they're trying to trying to convict him of wire fraud in, involving aircraft parts. And as a flight test pilot, you don't really, you don't sell parts. And so the, 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 the connection they make is that, well, the pilots all knew that if Boeing sold airplanes, that Boeing is going to make money. So therefore there's, there's a financial interest. Like there's, that's a stretch. Okay. Uh, Boeing's what a hundred thousand employee company, 250,000 employee company. I mean, it's a huge corporation selling some airplanes, uh, does not going to increase the, the take home pay for a flight test pilot. I've, I've never seen that. I doubt that that's a thing. So it isn't like there's a real financial incentive besides selling, you know, Boeing in general, selling some airplanes. Okay. But the, the, the pieces I pulled out of it were uh, sort of the, the flow of how the thing broke down in, in terms of uh, they were, he, the Forkner was in a simulator. They're run, doing run throughs on the simulator and the simulator started to act funky. The flight test engineer said they're having issues. Okay. Awesome. Um, he questioned it. They thought it was MCAS. He reached out to somebody who had been involved in MCAS, and MCAS's guys are saying, yeah, we've it now operates at high speed and at low speed. Okay. Should that have been conveyed to the FAA? Maybe. I don't know. Well, the answer in the complaint is yes, is yes. So if you if you grant them that the answer is yes, then that's where this becomes a little more clear. So, okay. okay. But. There's not one person designing this airplane. I mean, there's hundreds of people designing this airplane. And that same information that maybe the flight test pilot knew, the safety people knew, they, they must have. The, guy that's the, the people that designed the system must have known. And that makes me wonder if a flight test pilot, FAA flight test pilot was in the airplane at all, came across that system, maybe activated because of the flight test regimes they were going through. I, it's not... It, like it, it levies all these things and accuses all these things on one person. There's not one person involved in this. One person didn't have that much control over the design of the system. Maybe he told, if he had told the aircraft evaluation group that it was the, the, the MCAS system was working at low speeds, would the aircraft evaluation group would have had a different response on training? That's a maybe. That's a guess. You know, I think that's that's still a guess. They may have. They, they may come back and say, yeah, we want, we want to do more training because of the low speed aspects. Awesome. I, I think that fine. You know, and I think AG hasn't been explicit in saying that. So there's just a, a couple of missing links here as if you're going to accuse them of essentially causing crashes. The two crashes that have been involved have nothing to do with low speed operation of the system. They're just a couple of different aspects that don't click with me on one person being the linchpin to aircraft problems. The way I read it, and I think it's laid out in a pretty, pretty cohesive way, but they basically said it, it seems like he was the point man. Like he was the one who had to tell the FAA and like uh, testify if that's the word, maybe it's not 
to them about what should be or should not be. And that's why the other people that were involved in the project aren't really relevant because they weren't the ones the FAA was asking the questions to. They weren't the one who was instructed to tell the FAA what was going on about these different things. That wouldn't be the case in any kind of certification that I've been involved with. The certifications that I'm involved with, each of this each of the individual dis- disciplines, and flight test is a discipline. So from flight test to uh, electrical to mechanical to flight controls, all those different elements, they only focus on one, flight test. The, the people that did the system safety assessment, who I think knew this was going on, told the FAA, I would assume they would have told their counterparts about it or talked about it are, you, are, are we are we making the are we making the case that the faa knew nothing about the system at all in any aspect ever i just find that hard to believe well i think it's just narrow i mean i think the the point is which they outlined i think pretty clearly which is did when he was testifying to the faa or just talking to them whatever again whatever term i don't know the right term um did he withhold information that he knew had changed that should have been in the, in the manual? And it seems pretty clear, like abundantly clear through the, the criminal complaint that he did, because they say on this date, here's some correspondence via email, via text that shows he knew this. And then here's another date later where he went in front of the FAA and did not disclose that information, which he should have disclosed. They're not claiming that he caused the crashes. They're just saying here is the fraud, which is, he had information, he withheld it. He had information on this date, he withheld it on this date. He, like, he had numerous opportunities to, to come clean, essentially, with what should have been in the manual about the MCAS, and he just didn't. So that, to me, is what I pull out of it. I don't know that all the other things about other others involved in the program are material or not, um, because it doesn't seem like they were asked. They weren't in that position where, do you should, the, should this be in it or not? And even if it was, that's... That's separate from from what from what he from what he did. I, I don't think they are separate. I, I, and here's this is why I say there's there's multiple aspects to any uh, large aircraft mod. Even small aircraft mods have multiple inputs as to what should happen and, and how the how it all should integrate together. So uh, let's just play this out for a second. So the safety people said, and. I could be wrong, but I think what the safety people said is that if the system misbehave, the response is to turn off the horizontal stab. Okay, awesome. So if if the safety person is telling the flight test pilots, which I'm sure they did, that the, the way to address this particular issue is to shut off the horizontal stab actuation system, then I don't know if I'm super worried about that as a flight test pilot. Like, it's the same as if the horizontal stab started to run away at any particular time. I think it had... So, although the system, I think there's a question about how many times the system should have operated. The people who designed it knew that, and the people who safety assessed it knew that too. Did the flight test pilot know all that detail? I, I don't know. I don't. I doubt it. If, if let's unwind this one more step. If the flight test pilot knew that the system would react multiple times to force a nose down, he had really a hard, difficult time to get it back. Do you think that they're telling the FAA that uh, the system's fine? Or, or are they going back to the design guys and, or design team and saying, this doesn't work the way it should, and we're not going to we're not going to bless it, certify it. You see, you see how it's 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 like a tangled web, and they're trying to pick out one string out of this tangled web and say, well, this is the this is the the, the piece that hold it all together. If if this flight test pilot didn't 
convey this information to this specific group, then the whole thing is a disaster. I, I think there's multiple opportunities on multiple levels for people to say something about it. And it either didn't come come through or didn't get addressed. Yeah, but I'm not sure that changes. You know, just like if you're to go sit before Congress and testify and give 99 true statements and give one false one and lie in one line about one fact, Congress, you still lied to Congress. And I think that's what they're highlighting here is that he had opportunities to explain that the MCAS was now different, that he knew was now different than he had originally told them. He said, leave this out of the manual. This isn't going to be relevant because of X, Y, and Z. And then when those facts change, but they've, they're clear that he knew he went back and didn't, didn't tell them. And then is, so I don't know that it, the other aspects of it are significant, but what is for significant is they said, they know that this was, and known by him, a significant financial interest, because if he had explained that this stuff should, the MCS should be back in the, uh, in the pilot manual, that that was going to bump it up above a level B certification, which was going to cost Boeing millions and millions of dollars that they were going to have to give back to their customers because now, because their contracts were written that it was only a level B where the pilots didn't have to do, you know, more training than what was there. So, um, yeah, I don't, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it, how it plays out because, like you said, there's a lot of there's a lot of veins to this. Look, just to be clear about this, you shouldn't. You, you, there's no need to lie to the FAA, right? There's, there's no there's no situation where that makes any sense at all. Because if you're if you know the aircraft is designed properly, tell them. You know, you can just tell them how it works. It should be a no brainer for the FAA to buy into your solution. I think that that is clear. Don't mess around there. What I'm saying is, I don't. You know, th- there's a lot of missing pieces here of other engineers on the staff saying that the system was safe. There's not just one person. You know, the flight test person is a very important link in all this, but it isn't like they're alone in making the assessment necessarily. That's that's the part I think that that the prosecution is going to have to try to weave through because the defense is going to highlight that like crazy. Like there's not one person designed the airplane and everybody on the on the Boeing side thought it was safe to go fly. I'm just not sure if that's the question that they're asking is he like, I don't think the burden of proof is whether he thought it was safe because he probably did. And even without the MCS being the new version of it or whatever, he probably would have said, yeah, it's safe. But that wasn't the question. The question was, why didn't you tell us this when it changed? It seems like the answer is because it would have cost Boeing millions of dollars and but you in hot water with Boeing because this was supposed to be a level B training requirement. That that seems like the narrow focus of the investigation. It is. And I think it's an assumption they're going to have to try to make the case. I think it's going to be a lot harder once you get in that courtroom than than what it seems on paper. So moving on, uh, the Cyclotech Cyclorotor is back in the news cycle, which this is an interesting one we talked about, I don't know, maybe a year ago, Alan. So this one, this one is probably the closest to that sort of Blade Runner 20, 2049, where you could have one of these essentially in the wheel well. I mean, if you haven't seen this, it, you know, it's got four rotating drums, um, get a lot like four, you know, tires on a car. And Alan, how does first? How does this work, and how does it generate lift? Because it there's a video on YouTube that we'll link to that shows that this thing you know can get off the ground for sure. Oh yeah, it, it's it's like a helicopter blade that's been 
cut into quarters or sixths and then put on a drum so they spin instead of whirling around above your head. So it's a different configuration. The aerodynamics are similar in that with a helicopter blade, you can change its angle of attack and you can make the helicopter go up, down, left, right, those kind of things, right? So it has sort of all those features built into this road, high High speed rotating drum. I, I don't remember how many RPM, Dan. Do you remember how RPM those drums are moving at? That's fast. I don't. I don't. But they're yeah, they're boogieing. They're bo- they're boogieing. Yeah, yeah. And I think Dan's right. I mean, it, it is like uh, something you see on a sci-fi movie. Uh, the it has advantages, right? In which you named, which is it's compact, right? That that you don't have those big whirling blades spinning around. So it does look like tires or wheels on a car it's about the same width and but the, the question is you know we've seen it if you watch a youtube video and i encourage everybody to go watch it because it is a cool piece of technology it's inside a hanger so they're taking lifting it off and kind of floating it around and bring it back down inside a controlled airspace no no wind right so what happens when i take it outside i don't know yet and there's a lot of i'm sure there's a lot of flight control dynamics that they have to work out on how it needs to operate. But the, the one thing we are talking about before recording the show was how much energy does this thing use? Is it efficient, right? Because I think that's going to be the, the, the driver. It's, it's compact, but if I'm using battery power, it seems like I'm not super efficient. Yeah, it's uh, obviously that's a bottleneck even for the traditional, if you call any EVTOL traditional at this point, right? I mean, can they get the... Can they get the uh, the flight time and all that, given the energy density of current batteries and then the weight of batteries? How much you know? How much battery weight can they have and still have passengers and do the job and all that stuff? So, the question is, if this is viable, how far in the future is it? How much battery power does it need? How, you know, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, as far as like safety goes. Uh, yeah, we don't know. And I'm sure you, as you know, this will be hard to certify because it's unlike anything out there to compare it to. Right. But, but at least from the safety standpoint of if you're flying this in a city in the distant future, a la Blade Runner or something, this one seems like it's not going to, you know, decapitate a ton of people like a helicopter could, or, you know, any of those scary scenarios, which are unfortunately scary scenarios. Right. And this one seems like, Hey, this thing's just moving around kind of like a car has each of these rotating drums in the wheel wells essentially and it it honestly reminds me of that blade runner style you know hovering car so yeah i mean it'll there's a lot of unanswered questions but it's it's cool that it's progressed because you figured i think this one was the one that was just like wasn't really going to go anywhere but it's still it's still moving around and still seems like it's progressing in some direction but as you've mentioned many times it takes a lot of money to keep these programs going and what are the, how, how long are investors willing to wait? I know that's a good question. I always say it starts at 500 million and probably ends somewhere around a billion dollars for something like this. If you're going to put it into mass production. Yeah. So that's a lot of fundraising. That's a lot of money. It just is. So we'll keep an eye on it, but yeah, definitely interesting. Um, best of luck to them. I mean, like I said, I would love to see hovering cars a la Blade Runner. That seems super cool. And uh, so they seem like maybe the front runner to, to have that sort of vision of the future uh, come to fruition. So last on the docket today, uh, Lilium and ABB are partnering to get, uh, you know, charging technology 
going uh, a little further. So obviously, you know, LA is leading the charge, Los Angeles in the US is leading the charge on getting the infrastructure built to allow EVTOLs to, to be successful. Just like with electric cars, they had to have a charging network, which is still rapidly being built up. So, I mean, these charging ports uh, from ABB will hopefully allow EVTOLs to be charged in about 30 minutes, up to 80% in 15 minutes, which is pretty fast. And obviously, we were talking about fast charging technology recently and how it's just it's rapidly inc- improved. Um, so why do you think Lilium is so concerned right now? Is everyone just trying to get their own sort of piece of the inter- infrastructure future? Oh, absolutely. Because you, you control the landscape, especially on the marketing side. That's why Tesla, is, if you look at the Tesla chargers, they say Tesla and it grows, glows red and looks like a spaceship is landing. You plug your car into it. There's, there's a lot of marketing in, in chargers, right? And you want to get the supercharger, not the standard charger out of Tesla because it charges your car faster. That all plays into marketing and sales because uh, it's a sweet spot. I, I think hooking up with a uh, a charging company, an electrical company that does sort of industrial charging makes a lot of sense in doing it sooner rather than later because you need to get that infrastructure in before you deliver the first aircraft because you can't deliver an aircraft and have no place to plug it in. You have to have it ahead of time, right? So you got to give those companies time to develop the charging infrastructure and get it installed in the airports in which you're going to operate uh, so that your product is then successful. I, uh, the, the, the one thing I keep wondering is, what's the connector? Is it like the iPhone <laughs> where, where you have to have a specific plug or is it going to be a universal charging port? Because even the Tesla charger is different than other car manufacturers' chargers. Uh, it, you know what I'm saying? Like, there, there, I don't think there's a standard today. Oh, there's probably not. Yeah, probably not. How's that going to work? Yeah, well, and, and that's, I think, a thing that's been changing because, you know, in the, in, over in the, well, I don't know, just over in Europe, I was going to say in, in the EU, EU or UK, I'm not sure exactly, but over in Europe, they're, you know, pushing Apple to, and every manufacturer, but m- notably Apple, since they had their lightning charger, uh, the lightning connector for phones to get to a universal standard because they're like, look, there's a million, you know, phone chargers ending up in the in the landfills and these cables that, you know, we don't need to have. Like, we have USB C. Can we all just can we all just do USB C, please? That's basically like it seems like the battle cry, which makes a ton of sense. Like micro USB, no one likes it. It's it's on its way out, right? It's not a double sided connector. The lightning is Apple Apple exclusive, so Apple likes it, but no one else really cares. I mean, people ultimately don't care anymore. They're all small. They're all efficient, so let's just take the one that's double-ended, which is the USB-C. You just you know shove it in whatever orientation, and it, and it works. That's great. So you, so you wonder if we'll have to fight this same fight again with car chargers and airplanes, or if we can just, like, look, let's just start right away. Let's, let's find a universal and just get to it and, and stick with it from the beginning. That seems like the best thing for the environment and for everyone in general, right? Yeah, I think so, and because and, you, you, you run into two potential problems here, uh, installing, you know, if there's any chance you could put a wrong charger on an airplane, it's a it's a it's a big deal because you could damage the battery system and cost yourself a hundred thousand dollars worth of damage. So coming to a standard here would be really smart for the industry. Yeah, and I think it, like like you said, just getting that from the from the get go rather than going through the growing pains of having to sort through them that would be that would be terrific.
Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Struck Airspace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. Be sure to subscribe to the show, share with a friend, and we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.